anything you read on the internet today except believe your eyes. We have a comic legend, Brett R. Smith, coming on the show today. And here he is. But first, Thornall, how was your week? <laughs> hey, man. Uh, week was good. It went by too quickly, let me tell you. Uh, I don't really have anything crazy or interesting to report, but I did go see the latest John Wick. You knew I had to. Mm. That was really exciting. Have you guys seen it yet? Not yet. All right. We'll, all right. We'll do a full review on the show next week. So, uh, uh, oh, I forgot to ask, uh, Mr. Smith. Uh, should I call you Brett or or Mr. Yeah. R. Smith or? <laughs> Brett was fine. Yeah. Um. So Brett, now we're about to make a fan of the show out of you. So, so listen in next week when we talk about John Wick. You, we can all compare notes uh, over the great internet. Yeah, the, the the demographics were interesting on that. Um, my buddy Larry Schweikert, who wrote uh, uh, Patriots History of the United States, went and saw it, and uh, he loved it. But it, but apparently he told me that like it, it pulled in like seventy percent male audience. So it was uh, probably that and Top Gun Maverick you know, was able to uh, pull men back into the movie theater, which isn't, you know, kind of a, a feat these days. Sure is. <laughs> it really is. You know? Need, need some red meat, some red-blooded action flicks. Well, yeah, and something other than a female protagonist, you know? I yep. mean, what a novel idea. In <laughs> the same year, we also had Maverick. I mean, what the heck is up with that? I mean, within a year, not the same year, but still. I you know, um, it was something else I talked about with Chuck, you know, on the um, on political punks, which, um, you know, which I know you watch. We were talking about how um, Yellowstone is so is so popular. And and when Hollywood wants to make money, they go they always go back to traditional values. And I think that also, you know, if you want to get guys back in the movie theater, give them action and give them uh, a male protagonist. And of course, we all grew up with Keanu. So, um, you know, it's kind of like, the old gunslingers, uh, Tom Cruise and Keanu, these guys are sort of like the last action heroes in a lot of ways. And and I think that it's um, not only nostalgia and also just who we're familiar with, but these guys are talented. And I think they also understand what works and what's always worked. Um, you know, Hollywood just loves to deviate from that or they seem to. That seems to be the pattern. But they've been throwing so much bad, you know, you know, good money at bad entertainment that you know, on top of COVID, which basically shut the entire industry down, I, I think it's finally catching up to them and they've got to go back to traditional American values and they've got to go back to what works rather than sort of, you know, throwing shit up against a wall, throwing woke shit up against a wall to see what would stick. So yeah, good luck. Positive. It's I mean, we're it's those are two positive movies that, you know, had they occurred in the 80s or the 90s, the studios would say, okay. We need to follow that method because we want to make money too. You know, um, you can look at the buddy cop genre. You know, if you look at Lethal Weapon or, um, I mean, how, you know, or Die Hard. You know, how how often well, there's like the old joke. You know, die, you know, uh, Die Hard on a plane, Die Hard on a bus, Die Hard in a submarine. You know, it's like that used to be the way Hollywood thought was let's take this template which works really well and plug different actors into it and see if it'll work. And nine times out of 10, it, it, you know, I mean, or probably more, it, it, it did work. And that's what people want to see. So. 
So do you think this is just a, a temporary panic thing, or do you think they're actually going to be making some permanent changes? Oh, God. You know, it, it, it's tough. The, I mean, the people that run Hollywood are not the same people that run ran Hollywood in the 70s or the 80s or maybe even the 90s. So I, I don't know. It, it, it's a tough one. You know, they, they lampooned Tom, and they made fun of Tom, Jimmy Kimmel, and, and others. Um, and like really made fun of him, not just kind of like playfully poking fun at him, but going after him over the Scientology and, and certain things. And I, and I think that that's a troubling sign because I, I think that what a lot of Hollywood, I think, I think Hollywood looks at Tom and they say, why isn't he repeating all this woke SJW crap? Why isn't he with us? Why isn't he fighting for the cause that we're all fighting for? And why is he trying to shoehorn all of this crap into his movies uh, you know, and and they're and that's troubling to me because they know it doesn't work. And then they look at Tom and they see what he does, whether it's Mission Impossible or whether it's Maverick, and it does work and it makes a lot of money. And people love to go to those films not only once but twice. I saw Top Gun Maverick twice in the theater. I don't know when the last time that uh, I went and saw a movie twice in the theater. I, I honestly, in the 80s and the 90s, I used to see movies two, three times. I remember I saw Batman Begins like five times in the theater because I loved it so much. And it's still my favorite of the three uh, from the standpoint of the Nolanverse. Um, but, you know, we don't have movie stars like that anymore. No, it's, it's been said so, many times that Tom Cruise is the last movie star. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think Keanu's kind of there, but, you know, sort of uh, obviously sort of not at that not not the same caliber because um, because Keanu's been sort of different things to us over the years, you know whether it's um, you know Rivers End or whether it's uh, Bill and Ted or um, or whether it's John Wick or, or or you know I mean really to me Keanu didn't really become an action hero until The Matrix and that's sort of what you know uh, Speed you know or um, Point Break obviously but really an action star somebody who he kind of just looked at, but, you know, he's making movies with Scorsese and, you know, he was, um, you know, he had a pretty diverse career, pretty diverse background in, uh, in movie making. And he wasn't just sort of pigeonholed into action hero like Bruce or like Stallone or like Arnold. So um, I, I think Keanu is a legit action star now, but it kind of came late for him. Whereas Tom's always sort of been kind of that guy uh, even though um, he's got a pretty diverse background too with, you know, working with Oliver Stone and um, Stanley Kubrick and, and, you know, I mean, I mean, granted, not everybody can be Tom Cruise, you know, I mean, that, that is, he, he's one of a kind. So, but we're blessed to have him. And, um, you know, the, I know people like to rag on the Scientology stuff, but um, um I, that stuff just doesn't bother me, you know, and, and ever since that Matt Lauer interview, he doesn't talk about anything other than pop culture, entertainment, and, um, and, and seems to like, uh, re, you know, reminding everyone how grateful he is for the life that we've all afforded him. So, and, and you don't see, you don't see movie stars going out there and doing that. You know, I mean, it's one thing to hang out of an airplane and say, thank you for letting me entertain you, you know. But movie stars don't do that even when they're in junkets or even, even you know, even at awards, at award ceremonies. They're just stroking themselves and stroking everybody else. Hmm. Um, 
and and Tom Cruise has uh he doesn't just have charisma and he doesn't just have you know he has good cinematic instincts and I saw this story last night it was for one of the uh Mission Impossible movies they kept they sent the movie to test audiences and it kept coming back that they felt like there were five endings and so the studio was really upset and they were like okay we need to do some reshoots we need to completely replumb this and tom cruise came back and said look the problem is is that after the end of every one of these action sequences we give this big musical sting and so it feels like the movie is over for five times hmm. what we need to do is we need to give and this was in the temporary musical score what we need to do is we need to have one piece of music for this entire 20 minutes that makes it feel like it's one linked action scene. And so if we have this one 20 minute musical score, that'll do it. And they went back, they scored that entire 20 minutes as one musical score. They sent it to the audience, all the notes stop. That's it. That fixed the movie. So it's not just, it's not just his acting and it's not just his charisma and it's not just his smile and him running. He genuinely has good movie making instincts and he genuinely brings stuff to the table. Yeah. I mean, he's, um, I mean, he's a producer and he's a very successful producer. So, um, and he just look at all the people he's worked with, look at all the talent, the, the directors he's worked with, you know, Tony Scott, Oliver Stone, um, I mean uh, Kubrick, on and on and on. The guys, the guys worked with the best of the best, and and he loves movie, he, movies. He loves cinema so much. Um, I, he's one of those guys that is a sponge, and he's going to sit there and he's going to learn, and he's going to apply what he's learned over the years, like any good artist, any successful one. And I just think that um, that's a great example of somebody who knows how to make movies and knows how to. Um, I mean, think about that. Think about the money they would have spent to go back and do reshoots. That's insane. You know, and all you've got to do is just go and tweak the score. You know, um, I mean, that's the kind of understanding of aesthetics and, um, and just basic movie making that I think is um, indicative of great directors. And yet he's never, he's never directed anything. You know, he, he chooses to you know, be the star, but also be a producer. So he has a hand in things. Um, you know, I, I think probably the, the mummy might've been, you know, pro probably maybe, maybe the weakest link, you know, but, um, <laughs> and I never saw that. It just, it, it, it doesn't do anything for me. I was, I wasn't really interested, interested in seeing it. Maybe, maybe I should, um, because maybe, maybe it's worth seeing something that failed that there, you know, or, or, you know, sort of failed that he did is, not quite as strong as the rest of his work, but you know, Tom's career has got peaks and valleys, but it seems like he's really zeroed in on what he does the best. And, and that's what he chooses to focus on. And I think as artists, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like uh, Clint says, you know, a man's got to know his limitations, you know, and um, you know, that's, that kind of goes across all life. But as an artist, I think you got to know your limitations and know your strengths and your weaknesses. And, you know, when I produce graphic novels, um, you know, that's certainly been the case. I know what my strengths and my weaknesses are. So I try and build my creative teams, you know, as strong as I can. 
to um, you know cover my weaknesses and um, and, and and therefore uh, you know give other artists an opportunity uh, to shine where I, I could never I could never you know write as well as Chuck Dixon or draw like Paul Ravoche you know that's that's not my forte but I can take their work and I can make it even better I can plus it which is what ultimately the comic book um, you know that's the um, um, the assembly line of what the comic book making process is all about is similar to animation where, you know, um, the further you get down the line, you know, each, each creative is, is as Walt Disney used to say is plussing the work that they're given. So those sketches that go to the background painters, the background painters plus them, they make them even better, you know? Um, and I, and I just think that that's, that's sort of what you try to do when you're creating an art and entertainment is, you're always trying to take what what you're given and make it even better with 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 your own uh, you know abilities. And part of that is knowing your limitations. You know, no, this you know it's it's kind of like you know I don't do my own taxes. You know, I know my limitations, <laughs> uh, but I have a great CPA. You know, and I give her as much information as possible so she can go and um, you know uh, help me out. But I, I think. I think Tom understands his limitations. He knows what he's, what he's best at, which is why, and, and it's strange to think that he's never directed anything. You know, I mean, every actor seems to want to get behind the camera, you know, that just seems to be. And I, and I think, I think a lot of that is hubris. Um, but Tom um, is more comfortable being in front of it and being a producer. And really, I mean, you can have a lot of say as a producer, that's for sure, because you know, you're, you're kicking in the cash for it. So but that's that's really interesting about um, Mission Impossible. I, I can't wait to see that. That it, it looks just it looks amazing, and I love the last one. So I was I was kind of I was kind of bummed that um, uh, Henry had to eat it at the end because he because he was so good. He was amazing. He has oh. uh, the Mission Impossible series uh, has just been one of the just an amazingly consistent, great uh, series of, of action films. Mm. Um, Some stronger than others, obviously. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But they're all, they're all, you know, above baseline, really good. And, and look at the directors and the, and the writers attached to all of them. I mean, they're, they're all top tier talents, you know? And even uh, number three gets a lot of flack, but number three, if you go watch it without thinking about the scandals that were going on at the time, mm -hmm. it's actually a really good movie. Yeah. Sorry, that's my hobby horse. I always pimp out number three when it comes up in conversation. I, I, I think the last one was my favorite. Uh, I mean, I just thought that it was it, it was so good, and the ensemble cast was, I think... I love the first one a lot. I remember seeing that in the theater and just being blown away. It was, um, uh, isn't that, uh, isn't that Wolfgang Peterson that did the first one? I think, um, I forget. No, but, but um, it was De Palma. De Palma. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, you, De Palma. Maybe the most under Palma movie ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause when I think of De Palma, I think of Goodfellas and I think of Blowout and I think of sort of the, uh, the early work, which sort of got him, uh, Pauline Kale and, and everyone sort of, um, you know, basically sort of saying that he's sort of, uh, what do they call those guys? The brutalists, he and Paul Schrader and Milius and all those guys from back then. They thought 
they all thought that they were just sort of these uh, ultra macho men who went out and made these super ultra violent movies. And of course they were so much more than that, you know, and, and all this violence was gratuitous and unnecessary. Whereas um, no, it all had plot points in it and it made sense. It was all justified within the story. It wasn't just violence for violence sake. So, and that's, that's one of the problems I have with Tarantino is sometimes I just think that he does wade into violence for violence sake. And I just sort of, I get kind of turned off, even though once upon, once upon a time in Hollywood, I think is, um, I just think it's a brilliant, perfect film. I, I just, I absolutely, I, I just adore that movie. Um, I never figured he could make a movie that was better than Jackie Brown, but he did. And it's, and it's, and it's once upon a time in Hollywood. And My that's another by far. Yeah. That's another unfortunately overlooked movie is Jackie Brown. God, it's just so brilliant. It's so good. And, and really, you know, um, is that Elmore Leonard? Is that who that is? Or is yeah. it? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I always get him um, mixed up with um, who's the guy that did LA Confidential who wrote that uh, James Elroy. For some reason, I always get them mixed up, but um, I've read, um, some Elmore Leonard. I after Justified, I went and I bought Writing the Rap and and um, what's what's the other book? I forget which is all based around Rayland because they're just short stories. There's never been a full book about Rayland. They're just short stories and uh, Fire in the Hole. Um, but um, amazing writer, just incredible writer who um, passed away. I think maybe five or six years ago. But um, Quentin stuck to the book. He stuck to the source material. And I but I think that. Like, like I was talking about, um, he plussed it, you know, by bringing in all this talent, this huge ensemble cast. And, and obviously Quentin's such a cinephile. He's such a, he's, he just, he's such a lover of movies and visual storytelling. It was the perfect marriage in, in a lot of ways, the same way that true romance is a perfect marriage between Quentin's script and the late great, <clears throat> excuse me, Tony Scott, um, who's one of my, probably one of my favorite directors next to his brother, Ridley. So Ridley's probably in my top five. So, um, but um, even Quentin said, I could have never made that movie. Not the way, you know, not the way Tony did. And the way Tony did it was perfect. You know, it was just absolutely perfect. I watched that again for, gosh, the umpteenth time because it's free on Pluto TV right now. And it's just amazing how good everyone is. Even Brian Rappaport, who's such a punk in real life. Um, Dick Ritchie, you know, it's just, it's, he's hilarious. I mean, he's just absolutely hilarious. Everybody's so funny in that movie, Brad Pitt, um, James Gandolfini. It's just a 10. It's just an absolute 10. And um, it's, it's almost kind of like what, what Tony did for True Romance is sort of like what Quentin did for um, Rum Punch, you know, which, which was obviously the book and then Jackie Brown. So um, I think Michael Madsen got my favorite line in that movie. Um, when he's listening in on all the interactions going on, he says, I'm really starting to like this guy. <laughs> I love this kid. Yeah. It's so great, man. Yeah. There's, there's so those guys, those, um, those guys have, um, was it Michael Madsen or was that Tom Sizemore? I get those two. It's Tom Sizemore. Tom Sizemore. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He's another one who he's just one of these great character actors that can take these small parts and like, and, and steal scenes, you know, and, yeah. um, um, uh, you know, Madsen is, God, you know, another one is just a genius. Just, just so good. 
Um, I, I remember the first time I, I realized that that's Virginia's brother. I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, because, um, you know, she, she was a very early crush for me uh, uh, growing up. There's, there's this kind of oh, small, small movie that she did with um, Craig Schaefer called uh, Fire with Fire. It's, it's ran I've on. I've seen that. Craig Schaefer like goes to some boys camp or something and and they uh, have some kind of forbidden love affair and you know it's it's I don't want to sit here and say it's like a great movie because I, I don't think it's very good but um, good performances from those two and it's one of those movies which ran pretty heavily in rotation on cable TV in the 80s that I, I you know probably shouldn't have been watching but was was able to watch I, I saw um, it on HBO is where I saw it. That's probably where I saw it too. Because back then you had you had HBO, you had the movie channel, Showtime, and then probably towards the mid to late 80s, we, we ended up with Cinemax, which is where I saw heavy metal and all kinds of stuff that, you know, at, at like, you know, 11 o'clock. And, and again, it's like I had a TV in my room with a cable box and um, I spent the summers with my dad. So that that's where I was able to watch this stuff. And I remember... Um, you know, seeing all kinds of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been watching because um, my, my bedroom was on the far end of the house and the master bedroom was on the other side. So it was easy to wake up late at night and turn that on and keep the volume down real low and, and watch things, you know, watch R-rated movies, you know, that, that, that uh, like I said, you know, it was probably like, you know, eight or nine, ten years old. So um, those, those, were, those were fun times and, and, and certainly, certainly had a big impact on, I think, you know, um, you know, the trajectory of what, what I saw myself doing down the road as far as a career, you know? The one scam I ran on my parents, which wasn't really a scam, but it was kind of a scam, is I would defend certain R-rated movies by saying, well, if it was rated today, it'd be PG-13. Right. <laughs> God, and you go back and you look at movies that were PG back in the day, and you're kind of like, how did this make it through the rating system? How is yeah. this not PG? And I think that's why they ended up with that, um, you know, that that new one. I, th I think Red Dawn was the first PG-13 rated movie, as I recall. Yeah. So that's Love another it. one, which I think I saw, I saw on cable, probably in 85, because I think that came out in 84. Oh yeah, I saw that one a little young. We had that on VHS. Mm, yeah, and that that was that was one of those movies which was um, actually sparked debate within households. I remember my brother, my I had two older brothers, eight and eleven years on me, stepbrothers, and I remember sitting around listening to them talk with my parents, and even my parents talking about Red Dawn because the the, the whole idea of a, a land invasion of America. Um, was um, pretty controversial uh, at the time. And, you know, you go back and you, and you look at what John did there um, and, and you see what the, the battle plan was for, um, you know, you know, for um, uh, the Soviets teaming up with um, the Cubans and uh, um, coming up through the borders. And it, it's really genius. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like it would work. You know, it, it actually, you know, but but it's but it's funny because like we stop them at the Rockies and they don't get really as far north as sort of like Texas. So it's like the, the center of the country holds and fights everybody off. You know, it's just movies. movies. It's it's good so fantasy. Good. It is. It is. It's 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 so believable. You know, it, you know, all these movies or any kind of good entertainment is all about suspension of disbelief. 
you know, and, and if you don't have that suspension of disbelief, there's no authenticity. You, you know, nobody's willing to, um, you know, go on that journey with you and, and believe it, you know, have that authenticity or the verisimilitude as Donner, Dick Donner used to say. So, um, uh, you know, it's that scene around the campfire with Powers Booth where, where they're talking about how it all went down, you know, and um, uh, Red Dawn, I think they're supposed to be in um, Colorado, but I, I think they filmed in Utah, as I recall. But um, either way, it's it's such a brilliant movie. It's and it's um, you know it's it's like it's like every, every Gen X's kid's fantasy to shoot communists and, uh, <laughs> and, and live off the land and you know be some guerrilla outfit in uh, in the middle of, of of the mountains, you know, taking pot shots at communists and then and then uh, taking all their weapons and you know it's. I mean, I, I remember thinking to myself back then, like like is like is this a possible future? Like, you know, is this something that, that could actually happen and, and, and how would it be? It'd probably be pretty rough. It wouldn't be anywhere near as romantic, but you know, either it's John always romanticizes that stuff so perfectly. So, so I did, well, I did a political punks one time with Amanda Milius and, and we talked about this. We talked about the movie uh, quite a bit. Um, Cause I, uh, shout factory has a really good um, Blu-ray of red Dawn. And it's got a it's got a couple of um, uh, DVD extras behind the scenes and whatnot. No, no, nothing really with John too much, but um, with with um, the editor and the cinematographer and, and a couple other people that talk about uh, sort of some of the behind the scenes stuff. It's also got some great interviews with Leah Thompson and um, a couple of the other actors. So Tom, no, Tommy Howell's not in there, unfortunately. Um, one of the things about Red Dawn is, and and not to go all you know woo artistic on people, but it really is supposed to be sort of, uh, and this is what John Milius was talking about, his his inspiration, is it really is supposed to be like, um, what if Afghanistan, but in America? What if the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, but in America? Right. And so all the rest of the scenario is just to set up these kids in the Colorado mountains fighting Russians, just like you know, Afghan Mujah, kids. In the just like the Mujahideen. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the rest of it, people are debating it. You know, what are the realities of this? Could this really happen? And everybody's like, well, it could never happen. It's like, that's not the point. It's not the point of the movie. It's like, what would it be like for you if yeah. your hometown was occupied and they set up, you know, these camps and re-education camps, because this is what the Russians, this is what the Soviets are really like. This is what they're doing around the globe, man. It's, it's, yeah. it just, just put yourselves in these people's shoes. That's what it's about. Well, even, even down to the details of um, once they occupy the town and, and uh, Jed and, and um, the other two guys go into the grocery store and if you notice that um, the shelves are empty, there's very few things that are for sale. It looks like a Soviet store. It looks like something in, a, in Venezuela or a communist country where, you know, you don't have 12 different brands of mayonnaise. You know, and, that, and that's yeah. the one thing if you talk to anybody that came from the old Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc. Um, I had a friend who, um, a guy that was uh, my mechanic back when I was uh, in high school used to work on my scout. His name was Henry Baduch. And um, he was probably in his late 30s, early 40s. 
Um, and uh, he was uh, Polish and went on a hunger strike, chained himself to the U.S. Embassy when the Poland was still under the Iron Curtain. Chained himself to the U.S. Embassy, went on a hunger strike for 48 hours to get his, his, get his family to defect. And uh, America took him in and, 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 he, and um, he ended up escaping before the wall came down. You talk to anybody from that world that came to America, and the first thing they'll tell you is usually how they went into a, a U.S. grocery store and started weeping because they'd never seen anything like that before. Nothing. They'd never seen that kind of abundance. That, I mean, not just that much food, okay? But like I said, uh, you know, 12 different brands of ketchup, you know, and 10 different types of mayonnaise and, you know, uh, sourdough bread, you know, you know, wheat, um, buns with sesame seeds, buns without, I mean, we take this stuff so for granted. And it's not until you talk to people who, uh, you know, wait eight hours in line, you know, with, uh, you know, basically a wheelbarrow full of cash, you know, to buy a loaf of bread. They don't get to choose what kind it is. They take what they can get because that's all that country can yield. You know, that's, and, and that's just through brutal oppression, you know, and, um, and, and also um, starvation, you know, basically. But, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I, I, I think that, I think what John did there, a lot of people say it's some right wing fantasy. I think Pauline Kale called it that. And, um, it's not, you know, it, it's a very subversive movie. And what it did was it got that conversation going. And I think that's, that was the intent. And I, and, and one of the things we talked about, talked about with Amanda was, um, I said, I, I think it's one of the most anti-war films I've ever seen. The, and, and even in light of all of the, you know, Wolverines and all this stuff this bravado and this machismo and, you know, all that stuff that I love and that, you know, gets my blood pumping. It's partisan rock at the end, <laughs> which just breaks your heart, you know, because that's the way all of these wars sort of end up, you know, some statue or some monument that nobody ever goes to, that nobody remembers, you know, and, and you know, you know uh, America survives, obviously, so it has somewhat of a happy ending. But um, John shot that movie in in sequence from start to end so he started off at the high school and he ends up with uh the eckert brothers dying and then the last scene is at partisan rock with their names etched on that that red rock and um and, and he did that on purpose to grind down the actors he wanted them war-torn and i love up. it when they do that actors deserve it it doesn't happen often you know, budgets, you know, sort of uh, get in the way of that and scheduling and, and all that stuff. It wasn't a very big film. Um, the other thing was where they shot, there was all the Russian actors in that movie are real. They all came from a college where they were teaching Russian. So, um, uh, and, and I think some of the Russian students were learning English. But, um, you know, to shoot in, sequ in sequence like that in order to get the, the kids to... Uh, uh, and they were kids back then, um, aside from, I think, Patrick. Um, 
I, I just think that's so brilliant. And it just doesn't happen these days because these budgets are so big and there's so much riding on the money. And, you know, um, I love I don't even know what the budget was on Red Dawn, but I but I bet it was I bet it was pretty small, you know. So, I mean, you, you, there's there's more creative freedom within that. And you can sort of take your time, you know, um, you, you know, I guarantee you there's no reshoots on Red Dawn. There's no pickup shots, more than likely not. So, but it's a good movie. I, I you know, the, it's, and it's another one where it's just sort of like when, when I heard that they were going to remake it, I was just like, why? Why? <laughs> it's already perfect. You know, it's, uh, was it Robert Danny Jr. is going to make, um, he's going to remake Vertigo. And um, again, yeah, I, I don't know why. It's, it's just sort of like with Gus Van Zant shooting Psycho uh shot for shot you know even shot for shot i'm just kind of like you know is this sort of some um educational exercise or something like what what is this about <laughs> you know some things should just be left alone you know um and and it's it's one of the reasons why i i was i was happy they're going to make a sequel to blade runner rather than a remake and, and i thought what uh, denis did was um was brilliant i just think it was just way too long <laughs> you know he could have cut Ridley's like, yeah, I would have cut like about a half hour out of that movie. I'm like, oh, a half hour? I would have cut like 45 minutes out of that movie. You know, I mean, there's these scenes in 2049 where, you know, just these shots that just linger. And, and being a visual guy, I love that stuff. But at the same time, you know, this, you know, we're not looking at paintings. You know, we're, uh, this is a movie. You know, we're making a movie and you got to, it's got to have, you know, it's got to keep the pace. And I, and I, I get kind of bored with 2049 in a lot of sequences. So, but, uh, uh, you know, but, it, you know, I was talking to somebody online the other day about what Hans Zimmer did on that movie, because Vangelis' score on that first one is just so brilliant. And it's like, you know, one of the most amazing scores of all time. And um, there's only one Vangelis, you know, and he's gone too. Um, but I think what Hans did on that was um, have all of these, um, he was able to make it familiar, yet fresh and engaging and, and, and interesting and to the point where I kept thinking, I wish Vangelis was around to hear this because I think he would have liked it. Another I good think... score is Black Rain. I just watched that recently. Awesome. And again, it's Hans Zimmer. Oh yeah, Black Rain is a is an amazing movie that just kind of disappeared, but it really is a great flick. It's Jan de Bon. You know, I mean, one of the best cinematographers of all time. You know, I mean, you can argue about his directorial skills. But, I, when, you know, but when it comes to shooting a film, I, I don't think there's anybody that, that, that defined the 80s visually better than Jan de Bon. Um, when he is in the meeting and he is, you know, he's got the ambush prepped and moving in and he voluntarily cuts off his finger just to trick them into... Uh, not paying attention so the ambush can come forward. You're just like, dude, that is that is pure dedication. I, I, a, uh, you know, I've watched the, and I'm one of those guys that watches the audio commentary, and um, especially anything Ridley does, I watch the audio commentary. Um, and um, Ridley gets all squeamish during that during that scene when he, <laughs> when he when he crunches the knife down, and Ridley's like, ugh gross you know it's just uh Ridley's audio commentary is great and i encourage anybody to watch anything with kurt russell 
whether it's the used cars audio commentary where he's sitting with the two Bobs, Zemeckis and Gale. And, and, I, and I think they're basically uh, getting drunk and, uh, and just laughing their asses off. But really Carpenter and, um, and Russell together on you know, audio commentary is just classic. Absolutely classic. I've watched The Thing uh, audio commentary with those two guys and also Big Trouble in Little China. And, and it's just it's just constant laughter. You know, you know, Kurt's just like, ha, you just got this cackle. John's laughing. You know, it's just this it's just hilarious. But, um, you know, it, it's 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 fun to watch artists go back and sort of uh, recall things and talk about why they made why they made certain decisions and point things out. Um, you know, I mean, I think you, you got to be definitely a pop culture geek to you know, to really, really get into that kind of stuff. But I always have. And that's one of the reasons why I always buy hard copies, because you don't get that kind of stuff with obviously the digital downloads and all this stuff these days, which which is a real shame. Plus, plus you miss out on, you know, cover art and all that stuff that Shout Factory Red Dawn release has a beautiful watercolor cover of, um, you know, of, of, of uh, what's his name? Um, who, who screams Wolverines? It's not Tommy Howell. It's um, uh, the other dude. Um, Arvart, Arvit, or whatever his name is, uh, but um, it's it's got him on the cover with you know holding up the the AK, but um, yeah, buy buy hard copies, everybody, because when the cloud fails, that's all you're going to be left with, you know. And funny enough, in, in Blade Runner twenty nine, they talk about how the cloud collapses and all of this information and all this art and entertainment and all this historical stuff is it's just gone. It's gone. It's gone forever. Um, I want to go back to specifically 2049, actually. Um, one of the things that a movie maker has complete control of when they make their movies is pacing. But one of the things that comic book um, makers don't have as much control over is pacing because people who are reading are going to zoom ahead or not. And so I read this commentary on it. And ever since then, I have always been kind of keeping it in the back of my mind when I read comic books is they said, a lot of the things we do when we're doing art for a comic book is to kind of get people to slow down and pay attention to the art. Mm -hmm. um, and that actually, that made me do two things. One, it made me read comic books much, much slower so I could pay attention to the art. And I was like, that's a good point. I've been reading comic books up till now way too fast. I don't appreciate most people do the art yeah so i started reading it a lot slower and two i've been trying to notice things that they're doing to make me slow down and try and pay attention to the art mm -hmm. um and so it has given me just a, a brand new appreciation and this happened several years ago for um for the level of skill that goes into not just, um, I mean, there are people who do good panels that tell the story and you can tell that they've worked really hard and they know how to do stuff. And then there are people 
who do great things beyond just the art necessary to tell the story. They are working on a whole nother level behind that. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, they're similar mediums, but they're also very different. And, um, you know, um, speaking of 2049, you know, there's obviously shots in that movie where nothing's happening and, um, movies and TV can get away with that, but, um, comics really can't. There's always got to be something happening in each panel, some kind of action or something which advances the reader to the next panel. So there's kind of a built-in sort of mechanism there. And, um, you know, I, I, I think you're right. I think people do read them way too fast and um, where you're sort of locked into the pacing of a movie, whether you like it or not, you know, you're, you're not dictating the pace. So the, the editing is, and, and the cinematographer is, but um, with comics, I think it's, um, you know, the good artists um, make you notice and discover new things. Sometimes when you go back and reread stuff, and um, J.G. Jones does that to me. Brian Hitch does that for me. There's there's a lot of guys where I miss things, and then I go back, and I'm like, oh god, how did I miss that? You know, um, I remember in the Ultimates when um, they kidnap George W. Bush from the White House. There's a there's a there's a plate of pretzels on his desk, <laughs> and if you remember, Bush almost died choking on a pretzel. Uh, during, <laughs> during his term. So, um, you know, and I, and I always encourage my artists to, um, to add things in. If, you know, I, I remember on Clinton Cash, I told, I was having a conversation with, uh, with Graham Nolan about um, one of his chapters. And, um, and, and, and he said, uh, I, I said, I said, if you see an opening somewhere to add something in visually that's funny and satirical, uh, do it even if it's not in the script, you know, I, I tried to give those guys as much creative freedom on that project as possible because I was given total creative freedom on that project. Uh, so much creative freedom that I knew at the time that I would never get this kind of creative freedom ever again, unless I was doing my own thing. And it was mainly because the guys that hired me to do it, Peter Schweizer and Steve Bannon, they didn't know how to make comics. They didn't have a clue. You know, they, I remember when they came to me and they said, we have the graphic rights to Clinton Cash and, and we want to make a graphic novel out of it. But I said, so what? You know, I mean, what, what are you going to do with it? What's it, you know, what do you want it to look like? You know, what's the tone? And they're like, we don't know. That's why we're hiring you. You know, you, you, you go figure that out. You're the comic guy with, you know, almost 30 years of experience. And I was like, at the time, I was like, I'm a comic guy, but I'm a colorist. You know, I, I've never produced anything like this before. I've, I've never been the guy who runs it, you know, who, who, who puts the creative team together and then manages the production. That's, that was never my gig. However, for, and I've been doing it for so long, and I, you know, I started in the 90s, you know, when we were still using uh, traditional mediums with uh, Chaos Comics. So it was Brian Polito that hired me for the, you know, that was, that was my first gig out of high school. Um, and that only came about because we shopped at the same comic book store, you know, but um, I remember um, telling Sergio Cariello and Graham and Paul Ravosh and, and, and uh, Don Hudson, you know, if you can make these panels funnier, if you want to add stuff in the background, do it. And I remember on uh, one thing that Graham did was um, uh, there's a, there's a, a 
there's a uh, chapter head uh, page, which we would do splash pages for, and it's called the Clinton Blur. And it's, it's sort of making Bill Clinton uh, sort of like the Flash. And he's running through the scene and, and it's like a, it's like a parody cover. And, uh, and, and one of the, and I should preface this by saying that, you know, when, when we did Clinton cash and I, um, uh, I, I remember, um, thinking in the beginning, I said, um, I said to those guys, I said, you know, the tone has to be funny. We've got to use humor. And at the time I was watching a lot of Sopranos and, uh, the first three seasons of Sopranos have, have a lot of satire and uh, a lot of humor. And it's one of the reasons why I like the first three seasons the best. Really, the first the first season I think is the best, and then it gets very dark, super dark, especially towards the end. And I, I think that's kind of the intent. Um, but Soprano starts out very playful, especially when the kids are still at home, because it's sort of like this quasi sitcom, in a lot of ways. But there's a lot of sort of like Scorsese ish sort of satire, like 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 built into the writing, and I and I love that. And then I also at the same. Around the same time, I had just seen Doctor Strangelove. I had never seen that before, and I was just—I was just blown away. I—I I, I was just like, "My God!" I mean, how Stanley never went back and did another satirical comedy like that is just sort of beyond me. But then I was like, "Well, he's sort of like, how do you outdo that? How do you outdo Strangelove, right?" Um, so I told him, I said, "This has to be satire," and I knew after my first meeting with those guys that um, I needed Chuck because. Um, Chuck was probably the only guy I knew who would say yes to it. Uh, he'd be fearless enough to say yes to it. Wouldn't be afraid of being blacklisted. Um, and then also Chuck had adapted The Forgotten Man uh, by Amity Schles, which is a book about the Great Depression. And it's a probably an even more boring and dry book than Clinton Cash. And he and Paul Ravosh turned it into a number one New York Times bestseller. So when I got on the phone with Chuck and I told him, you know, sort of, what I wanted to do, what I tonally, how I saw Clinton Cash turning out and being adapted. I said, we got to do satire. And I said, I'm thinking Sopranos meets Dr. Strangelove. And he's like, yeah, yeah, totally, totally, totally satire. It's got to be satire. But he's like, it's got to be National Lampoon satire. And I'm talking like 70s National Lampoon when, when um, you know, uh, Henry Beard and Doug Kenny were running it before Doug left and went to Hollywood and made Caddyshack and Animal House and became a Hollywood guy. Um, but those guys were the founders. They came out of Harvard and they had done the Harvard Lampoon. And then they went to New York and pitched it to Maddie Simmons and launched the magazine. And National Lampoon was the premier um, satire and comedy magazine of that era. There wasn't anything funnier. But Chuck's, Chuck's, Chuck's uh, you know, his observation was so brilliant. Um, because I had missed that magazine. I was too young, really, to, you know, for me, National Lampoon was sort of this, was sort of a TNA magazine in the 80s once PJ O'Rourke had taken over. You know, I mean, you did have some great writers like John Hughes that came out of the Lampoon and things like Vacation 58, which then turned out to be National Lampoon's Vacation. But um, Chuck was kind of like, what we need to do is make this super satirical, but no big heads, no caricatures, nothing like Mad Magazine or Cracked. It's got to be, the artwork has to be straight. And that's the brilliance of a lampoon was that the artwork was straight, whether it was Neil Adams, whether it was Russ Heath. Um, but the, the point was, was that the artwork didn't fight the joke. It didn't fight the humor. It was the straight man. And then, and then the humor was built into the images. So Graham came to me and Chuck had written this great panel of the Clinton blur. Bill Clinton's running through it 
And uh, people are like, you know, is he a politician? You know, is he is he a businessman? You know, is he both? You know, and it's this really funny panel. Graham comes to me and he goes, can I put a cheeseburger in his hand? And I'm like, yes, do that. Because that that's kind of like the old jokes about Clinton and the Secret Service. Phil Hartman did a great SNL sketch where uh, he goes to McDonald's and instead of buying anything, he just walks around and takes bites out of everyone else's food. <laughs> And uh, but I just thought, you know, those are the type of things that why you hire somebody like Graham Nolan, because they're going to bring things to the table that Chuck or I would never come up with, you know. But but again, it's kind of like that was part of the fun of that project was giving everyone as much creative freedom as possible, because at, because when you do that, you know, um, inhibitions are gone. And it's just it's just about creating things within that world and plussing those scenes and making them more than what they normally would be. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's sort of what's so brilliant about comics is that you've got these isolated frames of art, you know, and you can do so much more with them in a lot of ways than you can with cinema because you're dealing with a single image. So you can build all kinds of things into it, all kinds of background detail, you know, even things outside of the focal point where people normally are not looking, you know, and that's what I, what I love about comics is that. Um, it's so much, in a lot of ways, it's a much more immersive medium than TV and film, because like what you're talking about, you can linger on these panels. You can linger on these covers and on these splash pages and, and whatnot and discover new things that you might have not seen because you were kind of blasting through it too quickly the first time around, you know? So that was, that was a uh, long way of uh, making that point. <laughs> I, I appreciate it because I think I had a similar experience years and years ago uh, with Watchmen. I think that was my version of that yeah. story. So where, right. Uh, oh, damn it, it, Amazing artwork. And they put so much stuff into every frame. When I was a child and, and first given it to read, I was, I, I barely followed what was going on. Me too. And, and it didn't, it wasn't, didn't take very long, but it was a long time in between my next reading of it and when i went through it ju you just the just the first couple of panels where you're like oh they're actually trying you know the, it's the funeral for the comedian oh they're trying to to showcase this weird hobo uh doomsayer character right here in, in the background here and uh of course after you read it you know exactly who that is and, and right. but it's like oh all this stuff was right there in my face this whole time and they Why couldn't didn't I actually look the at the panels you couldn't do that in the film you know, I mean, if you had you had had you had him in the background, it's nothing you'd ever. So that's why it's like that. That scene opens up with Rorschach, you know, uh, or or at least it makes him more prominent, you know. But but in comics, you can kind of bury that stuff in the background, and whether the reader notices or not the first time around is, you know, it's kind of up to you know um, whether or not you're paying attention or if you're reading it too fast, you know. But but yeah, Dave's stuff on that is just so immersive. It's so it's got such density and depth, you know. Um, he and Brian Boland, you know, um, I, I I see a lot of similarities in their styles, and their and but they're both very dense artists. What you know, whether you're looking at Watchmen or like old Judge Dredd, I mean, there's so much going on in the background, and 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 that's that's what's kind of so great about guys like Ridley is they sort of do the same thing. You know, they, they world build by putting all of this detail and all of this density to where you feel like you're like in this immersive space. You're really, you're really there. You know, I felt like that on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I felt, I felt like, 
I felt like that was one of the first um, really immersive movies that I had watched in a long time where I felt like I was, I was there. I, I was, I was in that world and I was traveling in that little Carmen Gia with Brad Pitt. You know, people, people complained about those shots. Oh, it's just, why are all these shots of Brad Pitt driving? You know, it's like, it's, it's, it's art. It, it's, it's beautiful cinematography, you know, and Brad Pitt's a, Brad Pitt's a handsome guy. I mean, you know, what, what are we complaining about here? You know, and you've got all these, um, Quentin said that, that those shots from below looking up at Brad was supposed to be him in his dad's Carmen Ghia when he was a little kid. You know, that, that's what his point of view was. You're being immersed in the California that existed at that time. All those that, signs going by, the KFC and the, the billboards and yeah. It's yeah. a California that would stop existing in part in our timeline because of the Manson murders. Right. The Manson murders would come along and then the other crime of the 1970s would wipe out that California. It, it, it would stop existing. And so, I mean, yes, he's a writing point. a movie about that California where the Manson murders were would be wiped away. But in our world, it's gone. It gets wiped out. And the music you hear, the sights yeah. you see, it's it's just a love letter to that moment in time that is within a, a, a year or two is going to be wiped away. Yeah. It is not about the time. It's not about even the visuals. It is about the feeling that that is supposed to evoke in you. Again, yeah. not to go poetic and woo-woo on you. I no, just... but, but you're right, man. I mean, you know, we, I think, I think we overlook how movies make us feel yeah you know and and i remember i remember a time when movies made you feel good you know and you walked out and you were on a high and you want you couldn't wait to go and watch it again partially because it was a great adventure obviously but you want to feel that way again and top gun maverick did that for me it was <clears throat> it was um very bittersweet um you know i remember being a little sad that Tony wasn't involved in this, you know, but I feel like they captured the same high that I felt when I walked out of Top Gun in 86. And um, I thought Maverick just captured that same feeling, but it's a similar feeling that you get with, with great entertainment. And it's one of the reasons why we want to go back and watch these movies, whether it's in the theater or at home, it's no different than a great comic book or a graphic novel. If it makes you feel good, you want you want to experience that hero's journey again and again and again. It never gets old, you know, but that's what great art does. It, it evokes a feeling in you that you want to experience again. You know, I mean, that that's the whole that's sort of the whole point. You know, it's not so much the messaging. It's not so much the visuals. It's all of those things combined, which makes which evokes those feelings and there's just too few filmmakers and, and even creators within comics these days who are able to, you know, make people evoke, you know, evoke those feelings and, and uh, awaken those feelings, you know, that we used to have. And I feel bad for younger kids, uh, you know, younger millennials and obviously Gen Z who, um, who, who have never, who have never experienced that feeling before walking out of a theater on such a high, 
and just being like, wow, that was awesome. You know, do you, do you want to go see that again? You know, we used to say that all the time, you know? Yeah, let's go see it again. So I, I got a, I got a couple of points there. I think the one thing that's really killing us, I, I know that you really focused on the, the writing and the craftsmanship, but I, I think that movies nowadays are leaning so heavily into nonstop um, animated spectacle uh, where you get two hours of Paul Rudd and what's her bucket jumping around in front of a green screen. It's just that's, junk. Yeah. It's, it's not going to excite anybody. No. It's like one of those fake, uh, fake rides at a show. Oh no, we're in danger. Or uh, if you've ever been to a, man, they used to have these uh, big fancy IMAX 3D shows mm -hmm. where it was basically you, you just sit in a seat and watch some roller coaster style adventure. Right. On a, on a, uh, you know, on a 3D mm -hmm. screen, and it's just like there, there's no there there. Yeah. You're you're just sort of you're you're being shown someone having fun on a roller coaster instead of actually being on a ride. If you want that experience, go get on a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, like, it's like comparing, you know, like what you're talking about to Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a roller coaster ride. You know, I mean, this is a grand adventure. You know, John, John Milius talks about, you know, the uh, in Conan, you know, um, in, in that opening monologue, you know, talking about um, this is the days of high adventure. You know, it's like, what happened to that? You know, Hollywood used to be the town of high adventure, you know, um, because it didn't have to rely on that kind of stuff. And as great as the CG stuff is, um, it is such a crutch. And it's such a weak crutch at this point. And that's kind of why I think that John Wick just crushed Ant-Man. Just, I mean, squashed it like a bug, pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and um, I have not seen it, but uh, Larry was telling me that there are some just brilliant cinematography of these uh, fight scenes from above, he tells me about, that, that he said, I've got to see in, in the theater and experience. But he said, you know, nobody wants to see... Doctor Strange turning buildings upside down and inside out anymore. And, and I, I think he's right. I think that all this stuff is just tired and worn out. And unfortunately, as great as comic books are and comic book heroes are, and um, there's some, you know, obviously there's some of the greatest stories, you know, you know it's, it's American mythology. It's no different than Perseus or Theseus or anything that came out of Greek myths. This is our myth. Batman is our mythology. Iron Man is our mythology, you know, and, and um, you just compare that first Iron Man film, which is all about the journey of Tony or that first Batman begins, which is all about the journey of Bruce Wayne becoming Batman, you know, becoming more than just a man, you know, that, that scene that Liam Neeson has with Christian in that, in that prison cell, it's not very long. But man, that makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up every time I watch it. It, it is just, it's, it's such brilliant story making and, and storytelling. And then on top of that, it's, you know, it's, um, it's something that taps into each and every one of us, you know, you know, I mean, I mean, what are we going to make of our lives? You know, what are we going to do? Are, are we, you know, are we going to become something more than just a man or will we become a legend? You know, and, and um, I just think that, the story has been lost and the, 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 uh, the ability to tell that uh, timeless story uh, around the campfire for generations 
you know, they've substituted that with CG and special effects that, um, you know, is, is all computer generated. And um, it not only jacks the prices of these movies through the stratosphere, um, but, it, but, you know, and then, and then that turns it into this um, very high risk reward scenario, because if you're going to spend $250 million on a movie, it's got to be a sure thing. You know, so you got a lot riding on it, you know, whereas why don't you take that $250 million and go and make eight movies or nine movies for, you know, and, and spread your risk out and tell a good story, have less CG. You, you don't need to be dependent on all that stuff. You know, you don't have to have, you know, what they're doing is they're substituting good stories for spectacle, you know, and where it's a lot harder to tell a good story and have good characters that you want to invest in, you know, for not only an hour and 45 minutes or two hours, but for multiple movies, multiple film franchises, it's hard to make characters that people identify with. It takes talent, you know, and Hollywood, you know, it, it just doesn't have a, the stable of talent that it used to have, you know, and, and that's sort of what, what we're all sort of, you know, guys like us, we, we we're, we're seeing what's missing is that, is that auteur, that Brian De Palma, that Scorsese, that John Milius, you know, those guys were auteurs and they had a vision, but they also knew that they had to work with the studio to make something commercial, you know, something that was going to make money. But there's an incentive there for them. They get they make money and uh, and then they get to go and have more leverage creatively going forward. You know, um, I mean, that's sort of Clint's whole deal is, you know, with Warner Brothers, you know, uh, you know, I make it was originally I make two or three for you and then you make one for me. You know, and that's kind of the deal that Clint had with Warner Brothers. And now it's sort of like, you know, Clint, just go make whatever you want, <laughs> you know, and, and we'll cover the costs because, you know, even though he's he's you know, he either knocks it out of the park or he doesn't. There's some brilliant movies that Clint has done, which were you could argue are stinkers. Maybe they didn't perform as well. But that's the other thing, you know, this this idea that, you know, we judge a movie based on, you know, how much money it made. You know, it's that's that's also kind of a problem. But, but it's even more of a problem when you've got 250 to 300 million dollars to make back. If you've got a 20 million dollar film, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like, look at those S. Craig Zoller films. You know, um, th th those are great films. Uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 is a brilliant film, you know, and um, I, I always, whenever I tell people to uh, check out an S. Craig Zoller film, that's the first one I tell them. I don't tell them Bone Tomahawk. I tell them watch Brawl and Cell Block 99 because it's a little bit less gnarly but bone uh, tomahawk's a that on my list he, he's he's a he's an amazing artist or uh, you know he's uh, he just made a graphic novel uh, he's a strange dude but um he's he's definitely a man out of time he should have come out of the 70s you know but but all those guys from the, the the usc mafia back in the day even lucas you know those guys were uh really special and oh and i just uh, they just don't come around all the time i just saw um I thought I recognized that the name of that film. I just watched Drag It Across Concrete last week for the first time. What'd you think? Uh, I thought it was not, it was everything I expected, but also nothing that I expected. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. He does that. Uh, he does the, that in the, all of his films. You know, what, uh, what, what I really liked, I guess he directed and, and wrote it. Mm -hmm. Um, this is good because we didn't we we have we haven't done an actual movie review in the show uh in a while but dragged across concrete uh it 
is one of those films that takes its time to set up every scenario and every yeah. character and it doesn't do it like let me let me contrast it with a guy ritchie film this could have been done by guy ritchie and if guy ritchie did it it would have had all the goofy characters with the funny accents and the music would build to a crescendo as everything went to hell in a handbasket at the end yeah but no you it does go to hell in a handbasket at the end, just like you expect it to. Uh, but it's, it, I, I thought it was, and I hate to use this, this cliche, but like, I thought it was interesting and gripping mm-hmm. the whole time. Mm-hmm. And, and it, sh- I should have, I should have at the end of the movie said, man, that was way too long, but I didn't. It, it goes, it, it, the, the pacing on movies, uh, uh, deceptively fast. Um, the same with, once upon once upon a time in Hollywood. Every time I watch it, I don't feel like I'm sitting there for nearly three hours, or whatever it is. It goes by so fast, yeah. and there's so many scenes where I I almost wish it would kind of linger. You know, there, there's there's scenes in Once Upon Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where I want to hang out with Brad, and and Leo. I want to hang out with with those characters more. I want to get drunk with them more. You know, um, Drag Across Concrete for me. Um, I loved Mel Gibson's character. I loved all of the percentages, you know, 50, 50, 70, 30. That was really weird. Yeah. It is, it is. But it, but it's one of those things where it's like one of those ticks that, that you put into a character that says so much about them. You can learn so much about them. Chuck and I were talking about uh, Casino and um, the scene where um, De Niro is ha- is talking to, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy that plays Phil Green. Um, oh, shit. He's a stand-up, oh, I forget the actor's name. stand-up comedian. Does a great Shatner. Um, it'll, you know, my middle-aged mind will come to it probably in the next fifteen minutes. But um, <laughs> sitting there having blueberry muffins, and De Niro says, in the middle of all of this, you know, hey, you're losing money on this, and you're doing this and this and this. You know, they're going through Don Rickles. Um, no, it's not Don Rickles. It's um, um, oh god, it'll come to me. But anyway. Don Rickles is brilliant in that movie. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, he says, uh, Robert De Niro inter- interrupts him and he goes, he goes, he goes, wait a minute. He goes, he goes, he goes, look at your blueberry, look at your blueberry muffin. And he's like, yeah, what about it? He's like, look at all the blueberries it has in it. And he's like, what? He's like, I-, I don't get what you're saying. And he's like, well, look at mine. It has none. He's like, yours is falling apart with blueberries and mine has none. So then they cut to, the bakery in the casino and he's lecturing the cook, the baker. He's like, he's like, look at these two blueberries. Look at these two blueberry muffins. One is falling apart with blueberries and one has none. I want an equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. And, and the baker's looking at him like, do you know how long that's going to take? I don't care how long it takes an equal amount of blueberries in each muffin. Chuck and I were talking about that. And he says, great writing can tell you, all about a character in five minutes you you can learn everything about this guy in five minutes and that is a lesson in how to build a character this guy is detail oriented he's ocd he's a control freak but that's also why he's got the top performing casino in in las vegas and uh, exactly but i mean you know the the percentages and all that stuff you know with mel's character that's just telling you about the kind of guy that he is it's 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 one of those things which often gets overlooked as just some maybe some weird banter, but but this guy's got some kind of an issue. He's got some kind of a weird <laughs> tick where everything's like these percentages, and he's always like running the numbers, and and he's probably you know he probably does that with everything. I, I felt everything. that 
I had no idea where that movie was going to go. And, and, and like a lot of S. Craig Zoller films, they really go off the rails. You, you think it's going one way, and then all of a sudden it veers left and off of a cliff. And, and as you're going over the cliff, you're just like, wait, 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 no, don't stop. That's not what I figured was going to happen. And it's like when Vince Vaughn gets killed in that movie, I'm just kind of like, oh, shit. I, you know, it's, I never saw that coming. I never saw that coming. And, and, it, and it, it kind of bugged me. But I admire well, that, directors. I was going to say, that scene bugged me in particular. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry to that scene bugged me in particular. That was the only part of the film where I was like, this isn't really going to work, is it? Like their ruse isn't going to work. Exactly. Is he's, he's not, he's not going to fall for this. Exactly. And it happens. Exactly. And that's, you know, that's what's missing in Hollywood these days. And that's what's missing in comics and in storytelling and visual storytelling. You know, creatives who are willing to take uh, risks and make really hard decisions, you know, I mean, to the point where the audience isn't quite sure, like, oh, shit, you know, like, you know, like, like where did that come from? And uh, it reminds me of a movie called Dark of the Sun, which is uh, one of my one of my probably my favorite movie about mercenaries. Uh, it's got um, uh, uh, Jim Brown and uh, Rod Taylor from the Time Machine. And um, at that point in time, Rod Taylor had kind of been sort of pigeonholed into action type stuff, which isn't a bad thing. He was a really masculine, tough, big guy, and, and he can pull it off. But Dark of the Sun is a must see. It is a fantastic film. Um, and it's, you know, it's amazing. Rod Taylor, white guy, Jim Brown, obviously, black guy, famous uh, football player. These guys, have, these guys have the biggest bromance you, you, you'll ever see. These guys love each other. And it's 1969. You know, you know, you know, don't tell me that America's racist because that's bullshit. You know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, we've been getting over that for a long time, you know, and Dark of the Sun is a great example of a uh, interracial relationship between two mercenaries who are basically brothers. They don't see color. They're, they, they're just brothers. They love each other because they've been in combat and they've been under fire and they've been through all kinds of hell together. Um, you don't see any of that in the movie other than what takes place in the movie. You don't see anything about their past, but you just know that these guys, they're just bonded, man. You know, and, and nothing could ever get in the way of, of that. And um, the ending, I won't give it away, um, also sort of exemplifies um, uh, their bond. And, um, but that's a movie where Chuck had uh, recommended it to me. And uh, I remember watching it and like Dragged Across Concrete and a lot of S. Craig Zoller films, it just goes absolutely off the rails at the end. And what can go wrong will go wrong and does. And this guy, this director, I forget, he was a cinematographer and who made, uh, I forget the guy's name who directed it, but he was a really, really famous and successful cinematographer in Hollywood who went and uh, directed a couple of his own films, one of which was Dark of the Sun. And um, it just goes, it goes so far out on the left field at the end. The, and, and you, you know, if it's the, if your first time watching it, you'd never figure that's where it was going. But, but again, it's like, these guys, these creatives, these directors and artists who make, who aren't afraid to make really, really hard decisions, you know, um, and, and completely veer away from formula and what the audience is expecting. And I think that that is so missing in today's entertainment, you know, um, 
and that's that's part of great storytelling is uh is is surprising people you know and, and being like you know you walk out and you're just like did you figure that was gonna happen and you're just like no way that was a nuts that was crazy you know but that's why it was so awesome you know and and that's why we love these guys is that they take us on these journeys and we think it's going one way and then all of a sudden it's like going the other way sorry <laughs> but this is the way it is you know? and, and 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 speaking of which i'm going to abruptly segue we normally go for about an hour so uh i'm gonna i'm gonna abruptly jump in and say i i want to know I, I have a question, and mm -hmm. I hope DW maybe has more questions before we go. Uh, you mentioned this. You mentioned something along these lines earlier when you were talking about giving the artists in a comic freedom mm -hmm. to add things that add detail or humor to their to the panels. Mm -hmm. So, what do you do in your work? What do you do to make that magic happen? What What do you do to to set, tell a better story, plus one, and so on? I think colorists might have more creative freedom than, than anybody in, in the, uh, production, uh, you know, uh, chain, because a lot of the times I don't get any requests. I don't get any notes other than what's in, what's in the script daytime, nighttime, you know, most, most of the time over 28 years, it's been my interpretation. I largely get to do what I want. It's one of it's one of the best parts of being a colorist is that unlike the artist who get or the, the writer who gets obviously has to work within a box, you know, Chuck always I always used to ask Chuck, uh, is it hard to write Batman because you've got this 80 year old uh, IP that has all of his canon? And, and, and he said, no, he goes, it's it's fun. But he said it is writing in a box and you have to be able to get creative inside that box. So it's it's. It, it could be hard for some people, but for him, it's more of it's an opportunity to be creative. Same with Superman. You know, how, you know, how do you do something different with that character? You know, well, you know, it all depends on your level of talent working inside the box. So um, for me, you know, I, and it's same with the artists. I mean, they're dictated by what by what the writer does. You know, they're 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 also working kind of inside of a box where, you know, I'm the cinematographer. You know, I'm the guy that does the special effects. So I light, I, I bring, uh, I paint with light. I paint with texture. Um, I, uh, I, I, I probably dial in the, um, the focal points even more than what the artist does. Um, I add muzzle flares. I add glows to lightsabers. You know, you do all of that stuff that the special effects guys do as well. So the colorist is ultimately the purveyor of um, lighting and special effects. And, and from the standpoint of lighting, you know, lighting makes you feel things. You know, uh, Laura Martin said that. She said that, you know, um, a, a good colorist will make you feel. The first thing that happens when you look at a cover of a comic book, uh, obviously you're looking at uh, images that you either, characters you recognize, or maybe you don't, different situations, but um, it's very different you know, when you look at an inked page, black and white, and then you looked at the color version, the colored version evokes feelings. At least it should. You know, I mean, a good colorist understands how to use colors to evoke certain types of feelings in people. And um, um, I think, you know, uh, I think that a colorist's job is to obviously plus the artwork 
and make it more than what it is. I don't care who, I don't care who it is. I mean, I've worked with Walt Simonson. I've worked with Frank Cho. I've worked with Mark Bagley, um, John Malin. Um, you know, these guys are all masters. They're great at what they do. They're, they're great visual storytellers, but at the end of the day, they rely on us to make it, um, you know, kind of complete the whole package to make it finished art, you know, and, um, and, and bring it to life, even more life than what it, what it has as inked black and white imagery. So, um, you know, for me, I just try and, um, I try and give each panel, um, you know, depth, uh, you know, you know, kind of, kind of overall, uh, you know, you render a page obviously, right? So there's things that go into that composition, focal points, um, you know, fundamentals, um, you know, color theory, you know, using warms and cools. Um, and, and I, and I pull a lot from film more than I do from other colorists. There are colorists that I think are just incredible. Laura Martin's one of them. Um, the late, great Justin Poncer, probably one of my favorite colorists of all time. God bless him. Um, Frank D. Armada. God, that guy is just insane. Um, you want to talk about economy? That guy is just, uh, he just, that guy, I mean, he's so fast. I wish I was that fast. Chuck worked with him at CrossGen and, you know, Frank would bang out a page by about noon and you'd always know when Frank was done. Cause he'd be like, it's Miller time. And then he'd be out, you know, and just leave. But like, <laughs> I think, I think that good colorists, obviously, you know, um, you know, elevate the artwork they should, you know? Um, and it's not just about adding muzzle flares and special effects, but it's really about, um, you know, doing what Jordan Cronenweth did on Blade Runner and what Jan de Bont does. And that's why I kind of, I, I defer to film a lot of the times, uh, when I'm looking for inspiration, uh, you know, Ridley always, you know, uses the best cinematographers. Uh, I remember when I first started working in hi-fi, uh, design back in 2003, um, uh, Brian Bucciolato and, uh, Val Staples, Jason Keith, these are all guys that were sitting right next to me and they, taught retaught me how to color and and they were always telling me to go and look at film brian polito also told me to go and watch film and go and look uh, he said go down the, he's this was in the 90s he said go down to the library and check out a bunch, bunch of books on cinematography he, he said you know because i remember when i started coloring for chaos um i had a very marvel superhero -y style that that was not the chaos style not at all so Brian was like, Brian came from the world of film and video. He was a, a directed videos. He was a, a assistant director. So he tried to pull a lot of film uh, influence and, and also Stephen Hughes as well came, you know, pulled a lot of film influence because Stephen wasn't a comic book artist when, when they formed chaos. But um, I try and look at film. I think that comics emulate film and film emulate comics now, probably more than ever. They always have had sort of a, symbiotic sort of relationship between each other because it's it, at the end of the day it is visual storytelling so there's going to be some overlap there but you know the fundamentals of cinematography and the fundamentals of what a colorist does are very similar and even the digital colorists on the film side you know so much is uh, so much is reliant on the colorist now um and and that's all done in post-production where they go in and they literally tweak the warms and the cools and whatnot um in, in post-production it's very similar to what i do and what i try and do and um, uh, I've been doing some stuff for Eric July recently, and, and it's a uh, beautiful art. And uh, I've, I, I remember when we first started working together, I was like, 
you know, he was blown away by, um, I did the, the cover for Isom too, which um, I'm looking forward to people seeing because it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And I, I really liked how it turned out. And I just remember thinking, you know, when I look at it now, I'm kind of like, I see what I'm pulling from. I, you know, it's like I, it, I do it and I render it and I turn it in and then, you know, I go back, you know, maybe like a week later or whatever. And I look at it and I see different things and it's like subliminal you know, what, what I'm doing, but so much of it is, is, is pulled from film, you know, whether it's adding atmospherics like dust and smoke to add layers and to build depth of feel, or whether it's using uh, warm and cools in order to, to use, uh, to, uh, you know, center in on focal points, you know, meaning where your eye needs to go to first. Um, so much of it is just pulled from basic, you know, sort of art and design fundamentals, which I think I think these days is kind of lost because so many people think that if you go and you learn a program like Photoshop and you read a book about how to color comics, that you're a colorist, you know, that's not the case. You know, um, you know, you know, back in the day, back in the nineties, you had to under, you had to not only understand how to use traditional mediums like alcohol markers and gouache and colored pencil and uh, pro white and all this stuff. Um, but you also had to, utilize those traditional mediums correctly, you know, and that, that, that had to come from a basic foundation in art and design and understanding what works and what has always worked and going back and looking at Caravaggio and looking at the Baroque period and looking at uh, Rembrandt, um, going back and looking at old masters, you know, you know, these guys understood, you know, I mean, Gordon Willis, you know, when he shot the, the Godfather, I mean, I mean, that was all about Caravaggio you know, all that darkness and isolating characters and light and having those shadows and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I learned the hard way when you're coloring, you know, um, rendering is not about highlights. It's, it's about shadows. Shadows give things depth and shape, not highlights, you know, and, mm. and, and you learn that over the years just by doing and also looking at other people's work and emulating it, you know, um, and I, and I've certainly done that. I, I'm not ashamed to admit that, you know, um, part of my modern day palette that I color with is half Jason Keith and half Justin Ponser because um, I worked as Jason Keith's uh, as a, I colored books with Jason Keith uh, for about three years at Marvel. Um, you know, uh, in the business, we call that ghosting. Uh, basically, Jason took on more than he could take. And so we would split books together. I wouldn't get credit, but he, you know, he'd pay me and um, and, and I learned to ape his style and then that ended up becoming part of my style. And then, um, and then I really got into Justin Ponser's stuff after that. And, uh, and that's kind of where I look to these days. And for, for before Jason, I was looking at Laura Martin and funny enough, she taught Jason, uh, and Justin and Frank kind of how to, uh, she sort of established the cross gen style when they were all in house at cross gen back in the early two thousands. So, but, and that's kind of my style. I, I love, I love those old cross gen books, man. Like Ruse and Scion. God, those are just beautiful books. They're just absolutely gorgeous. You, you were talking about Chiaroscuro. What's that? Chiaroscuro mm. is the use of high highs and low lows to, divine, uh, to define three dimensional. Uh, to, to emulate three-dimensional space in a, in a picture with mm -hmm. Caravaggio mm -hmm. uh, and some of those other Baroque artists. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't Sorry. know that. <laughs> I didn't yeah, know that's, that's what it was called, dude. But, but you, know, you the, learn something every day. That's, that's cool. the term. I've been looking at art. Well, a lot of it is the, the the triangle. You know, um, you know that that that's 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 one element of it. You know, as far as like lighting and shading and stuff like that, and just you know, it's just basically. I think I think what what's lost these days in comics, especially comic book coloring and and just the art is just a lack of fundamentals because they're not using professional commercial artists anymore. You know, they're hiring cheap foreign labor that is using 3D and all this all these crutches and everything looks so canned. You know, none of it has any vitality, any dy dynamism. It doesn't it doesn't jump off the page and grab you by the throat. It's just it's just sitting there, you know, and there's nothing a color. I mean, I have polished a lot of turds over the years as a colorist. OK, and I'm not going to name names, obviously. You know, the, the artists that I named that I worked with are certainly not the people that I was polishing turds with. I mean, you don't polish. Frank Cho doesn't produce turds. OK, um, but. There have been a lot of crappy artists I've worked with at Marvel and DC. You know, sometimes you have to work with crappy artists in order to get to the point where you're working with Nicola Scott or Jesus Marino or, um, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, whomever. But I think um, sometimes bad art is just bad art. And there's not much you can do about other than just kind of do your best and turn it in and move on and never show it to anybody. <laughs> You, you can't use like poser models in art because it has no give. It has no, you know, stretch to it. Sometimes in order to emphasize the action in a panel, you have to be able to exaggerate the uh, anatomy yeah. so you can make the point that the panel is trying to make. You don't want a uh, mechanically correct uh, animated puppets. You, yeah. Well, and also you can kind of cheat sometimes with different camera lenses with some of these things. I do know that, you know, if you're using wider angle lenses, you can sort of exaggerate perspective and give the um, depth of feel and that um, um, force perspective you can kind of pull a little bit more out of it. But um, I'm working on a children's book and I'm working with Butch Geis. And um, I don't think anybody does force perspective. Very few do force perspective and, and have as good an eye for composition than Butch. Um, I've been lucky, you know, Paul Ravosh is, is an amazing artist. I mean, you want to talk about talented and his layouts are just so good. When we did Agent Poso, um, well, I shouldn't say that because I'm not supposed to, but uh, I'll move on. Um, it's okay. <laughs> somebody worked under um, end name on that book. We, we, I won't mention it again, but, you know, um, you know, Sergio is another guy who's, who's just amazing at um, force perspective. And, he, you know, he, he's a student of the Kubert School. You know, I mean, he went and learned the fundamentals from one of the masters from Joe and, and from the, some of the, the, the instructors there at that school. So, you know, nothing substitutes, um, you know, education, you know, and practice and just grinding it out until you've developed, uh, you know, the tools and, and the methods to, you know, to be able to, to maximize 
your talents and take them to a whole nother level. And there's no computer program. You know, there's, there's, there's nothing, there's, there's, there's nothing that can substitute for that kind of stuff. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, lacking in modern, you know, comic book art, you know, you certainly don't see it in the Indies, um, you know, whether it's cyber frog or, you know, whether it's um, um, Joe Frankenstein or, you know, you know, anything, you know, um, stuff, you know, you know, stuff that I, I, was, I was looking at some of the stuff Aaron Lepresti's doing these days, you know, man, these guys are so good, but they're, but they're old. They're like, almost like old masters at this point that, that those are, those are skills that, that, that those guys cultivated over the years because there was no digital back then. There, there was no crutch. There was no Google earth. You couldn't go and, you know, I, I love Sarah Pacelli, but she uses Google earth. She uses poser. She uses stuff. She uses, you know, it, it, it looks canned. And, and she's probably one of the better examples that I can point to who uses some of those things. But, um, some of the stuff today that comes out in Marvel and DC, I, I just, I mean, if you showed that at a con to an editor back in the day, back in the nineties, early two thousands, you know, you, you basically be told you're not ready yet, you know, go away, get better, come back and see me next year. You know? Wow. It's like the comic book equivalent of the actors in front of a green screen. I think, I think you're right, man. I think that's a great point. I, I think that, you know, like we were talking about so much is, is it, so much is dependent on technology, you know, and we need to get back to the human element, you know? Um, and, and, and this, this AI stuff, man, I mean, it, it, it bugs me. It troubles me um, because they're, you know, that AI is pulling it from somewhere, from some artist, from some photograph, you know, none of that is real. None of it's, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I don't know all the, it, I don't know everything goes into AI, but, but when I look at the stuff that I see online, I can clearly see that it's, it's not authentic. It's, 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 there's no human element to it. And I think that that is what, that's, that's part of what makes great art. You know, it certainly is when you look at the old masters, you know, whether it's uh, Raphael you, or Michelangelo or you just gave me a great idea though, man. I'm, I'm going to start eating your guys lunch. I'm just going to have AI prompts and, and I'm going to remind the prompt. Okay. Now give me a panel. Give me a comics panel as if it were written by Chuck Dixon, drawn by so-and-so and colored by Brett Smith. Like, give me that panel. We should we'll try see what that. it comes up with. We should try that. I'd love to see. I love to I would, see what it comes up with. I, I would do that right now. I wish I had prepared gonna, all of that ahead of time. It's going to be the see? equivalent of Will Smith eating spaghetti, you know? <laughs> I, well, I've already said this online, uh, and so uh, I will say it again. What AI art right now has a great use case for is quickly popping up pictures of things that nobody would pay an artist to make. Like, yeah. you get an idea and say, hey, what if the Transformers, and it's always Star Wars, it's always Star Wars, what if the Transformers were Star Wars? And so right. Optimus Prime becomes Luke Skywalker and uh, Megatron becomes Darth Vader, but they're Transformers. Okay, and that's a cute idea. And you get about 20 pictures and you you post them on Twitter and everybody looks at them because they're actually neat. Or a real yeah. one I saw is Joe Dorowski's Tron. Yeah. So it's Tron right. as right. if, I mean, that's a, that's a real one. They have I an actual... 
I saw He-Man as an 80s sitcom. There are some yeah. ones that are really funny and they're really interesting. And I'm not saying that there's there's no space but, for that kind of stuff. But but let's nobody, face it, this is not real stuff. Nobody could pay for that because no. the rights are too tra- tangled. And, you know, they're just interesting, cool things to post on Reddit or Twitter or, or Facebook or whatever. Right. But it's disposable. Yeah. Yeah. All of these things look the same they do you look the style at the rendering the giant yeah. forehead line there's some there's some really wacky I, I i'm sure this stuff will get refined more and it'll get more dialed in and it'll get more authentic looking but it's not authentic looking it, it really has an ai really does have a canned sort of look even ai has kind of a canned look it it it, it, it has to it doesn't have anything it doesn't have a soul you know, it, it doesn't have it doesn't have heart. It doesn't have soul. You know, it can't draw from the human condition. You know, I mean, w- when I when I get a black and white page, it's my interpretation, and that comes from my heart, and it comes from my soul, and and those feelings that I want to evoke out of that cover are uh, funneled through my brain, which then implements all of the fundamentals of art and design that I've learned over the last 28 years. And one of the, one of the things I was thinking about starting was doing some, um, some um, videos um, where I go back and I pull a page. Uh, and I was thinking about doing this with some uh, booster gold that I worked on with Dan Jurgens like about 20 years ago and going back and um, refining it and making it uh, better because I have learned so much over the last 20 years and I'm a much better colorist. I'm a much, I'm much more efficient. I understand it so much better. And that just comes from experience, man. And there's no amount of AI, you know, that, that can do that. And I, and I think that as an artist, I think you should get better over time. You know, it's like, it's like I worked with Ethan back in the early two thousands on some stuff he was doing called weapon X and it was great stuff. But if you compare it to Ethan's work today, you know, he certainly wouldn't want to talk about it. You know, he wants to talk about what he's doing on what he's working on today because that's his best work. And it shows, you know, it's it's not that that work was bad. You know, it's, it's like somebody who's lost weight, you know, and you say, gosh, you know, you look great, you know, and then that somehow implies that you looked like shit before. You know, it's like, no, it's you just as an artist, you improve over time. You get better. You know, it's 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 not about it's 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 not black or white. It's not that the old stuff sucks. You know, it's not like the stuff that I did for Devil's Do at G.I. Joe was bad, but would I color that way today? Would I make those same decisions today? No, no, I no. things are different now. And um, and I've grown as an artist. I've grown as a person. And so all of that stuff, you know, your experiences, the movies you, you watch, the, the books you read, the comics of the TV. I mean, everything, your life experiences, uh, all that stuff goes into your artwork. Whether you know it or not, you know, and sometimes I look at stuff years later and I'm like, oh, God, I pulled that from this movie or I pulled that from Robocop or I pulled that from Basic Instinct. And I didn't even know it at the time. But I'm like, holy shit. Like it, it, it just came out that way and I didn't even know it. But I, I see those things. And uh, but but I thought I'm doing some tutorials like, you know, uh, some coloring demos where I literally take old pages and go in do you know screen recording and um, and just kind of give them a little facelift and show how I've grown as an artist what I would do differently now 
what's what's right about this page, what I got right, what I got wrong, how do we fix it? How do we plus it? How do we make it better? And then therefore you show growth as 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 an artist and and as a human, you know, and that is something that AI it just doesn't have because it doesn't have it doesn't have a soul. Yeah, I Amen. just well, we are. It's time. Is it time? <laughs> didn't feel it didn't feel like an hour and forty three minutes, but uh, I, you know that that's when you're having a good time. Uh, it it has been great. It has been great. I, I will open it up. Um, DW, last chance at a question. Yeah, if you guys got anything, uh, I will uh, shut up and answer questions. If you guys got anything else, but you know, because I I probably talk too much. Not at all. No, I. I just wanted to mention two things. One, um, I was in on the Kickstarter for uh, the uh, John Ringo zombie series book, and I really enjoyed that. So awesome, man! Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great to hear. That was that was a fun project. That was a lot of fun. Um, we had a good time on that. And I also wanted to give you a chance to talk about uh, your upcoming project as uh, as much as you wanted. Is that has that already are you going to be doing that on kickstarter or has that already gone through or matt uh, you talking about mad dogs yeah yeah you know we're um still trying to figure that one out um um you know mad dogs is a uh, is, is a three issue series that chuck uh was a, 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 a french publisher reached out to chuck back in like the late 80s and um and they said um we want kind of a buddy cop action book and uh, uh, we want three issues and um, do what you want, you know, just go away and give us buddy action cop genre. So um, he did kind of this um, kind of dirty Harry meets the dirty dozen. Uh, instead of just one dirty Harry, you, you've got five of them. And um, they're just sort of turned loose on the streets of Philadelphia where Chuck grew up. So a lot of it's sort of autobiographical as far as uh, uh, some of the, the stories and the scenarios that are in it, uh, including the, uh, the scene where the guy um, drops the guy off the roof. That's for real. Oh. And um, he turns this in to these French publishers and they were appalled. <laughs> they, just, they, they were absolutely disgusted. And they just said, this is, a, this is abhorrent. It's, it's, it's just grotesque. It's violent. And just, we will never publish this. However, <laughs> however, you know, uh, it was all paid for and it was done and it was ready to go. So, so he owns the rights, um, and, um, it's got beautiful artwork. Um, unfortunately the artist has passed, um, Victor Toppy, he was a, a Brazilian artist and, um, uh, you can, you know, it's very indicative of kind of that, uh, black and white sort of sketchy style of that era, sort of, uh, even the Marvel bullpen at the time sort of had that kind of Mark Texera, you know, kind of scratchy, kind of uh, rough look, you know, very graphic. And it was always meant to be sort of black and white. So that's why it's such heavy inks. But um, it's beautiful art. And um, so anyway, French publisher wouldn't touch it. So he published it through Eclipse Comics in like 1991, very small publisher. And not many people read it, it had a tiny print run. You can still find it on eBay here and there. You can buy all three issues. And um, I remember um, reading a review of it and I emailed Chuck and I said, what's the deal with this? You know, like who's got the rights to this? And he said, I do. And he got all the artwork. Um, he's got all the original artwork, which was, and he, and he said, I've got it all scanned. And I was like, 
we should color this and reissue it. So, because, you know, when I look at it, it's beautiful art, but it can be made so much better with some color, you know, and some lighting. And, and so I, I, I figured, you know, I'll do a real kind of light touch on it. I won't go super detailed. I'm just going to add some lighting and some atmospherics and, um, and kind of, and then I also gave it kind of a softer sort of rendering, almost kind of like markers, because I wanted to sort of make it more organic to kind of match the art. Uh, which is very, very organic and sort of raw because it's all drawn on a drawing table, you know, with traditional mediums. So I didn't want it to look too slick and digital. So um, I just asked him, I said, why, why, don't we, why don't I color this? I'll do it in my off time. And then once I'm done, um, we'll crowdfund it, you know, and it'll be all done. It'll be all packaged and we'll just run a 30 day campaign. And, you know, what a better way to get people to uh, part with $25 than to uh, know that it's, it's done right? And they're going to get it in 30 days. So that's kind of the plan. And then we decided to um, fold it into the spin rack, which is what Chuck and Graham have launched, which is an online, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, it's, it's a website, which is um, also going to provide online comics, NFTs, uh, video games, all based around Chuck and Graham's IPs, whether it's Joe Frankenstein or, or Winter World, um, they're kind of, this is sort of their baby that they're producing with some, with some, uh, with some investors as, as a way to go around the crowdfunding and, uh, just, just do comics direct to, uh, direct to market. So, um, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. Um, it's still sort of up in the air. Either way, I think that we would have the successful crowdfunding because the whole idea was to have three issues in the can. And then, and then, you know, we started talking, why don't we do an extra issue? Why don't, why don't we continue this series on? Because um, the ending of the third issue is completely open-ended. And that's what's so great about it is that you can, even though um, some of the main characters do, do, get, uh, do get killed, uh, one does, um, you know, you, you can keep the story going. But it, it's, um, what I, the other thing I loved about it was it was a period piece. And I think that you can get away with much more these days when you do period pieces because you're not subject to all the woke SJW crap that people expect. You know, it's like, if you're going to tell a story about the eighties, that stuff didn't exist back then. So you can work right through it. You know, there's no problem there, but um, you know, basically um, I've just been kind of chipping away at it slowly. And uh, some, some of the other stuff that I've been doing has sort of been getting in the way uh, because you know, that stuff has deadlines and mad dogs is just sort of something I was just sort of doing as a labor of love and also in my off time. But uh, still, still intend to get it done by the end of the year, the full three issues, and we're either gonna publish it through SpinRack Direct or or we'll crowdfund it. But uh, either way, I, I really want to. What I was thinking about doing was building in some kind of a stretch goal for that for that fourth issue. And you know, if we can meet and exceed that stretch goal, you know, we'll go out and hire and uh, you know someone to because uh, Chuck's already got a story. He's already got a fourth issue mapped out in his mind, and I, and I think he's already started to kind of write it here and there, but, uh, and I've got an artist, uh, uh, this guy, Kevin West, who, who I'd like to, who I was thinking about approaching to, to draw it because he's got, um, he's got an organic style. It's not digital. And, and I, and it's kind of similar to, to Victor's work. It's got, uh, I don't want to say it's dated, but maybe I should, because that's kind of a compliment these days, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this new stuff sucks so much that, you know, those old guys, you know, some of these older guys that have sort of this dated look, you know, looks so fresh and uh, crisp and engaging in comparison to, you know, to, to, to this new stuff. It's the same with Butch. Um, 
you know, this, this children's book that I'm doing with him is a, a, you know, eight and a half by nine format. And, um, when I had the conversation with him the other day, he's been turning in roughs and I just said, um, are you working digital or are you working traditional? He's like, nope. He's like, I'm old school, man. Everything's on a drawing table. Everything's, you know, pencil and eraser. And, and I was just like, that's great. That's great. Because, because that has such a fresh feel. It's something that we've forgotten. We're so used to all the digital stuff that when you get that organic stuff, it really, really stands out. The same way I think that practical effects stand out more than digital. Um, you know, something else about practical effects is that they're about half the cost of digital. It's a lot cheaper to do special makeup effects and old school in-camera effects rather than the digital stuff. Hollywood could be slashing budgets by going back to practical effects, you know, but but I, I think that even within print, I think that too much is digital. I see too much just, uh, especially in the children's book series, it's all this really weird digital artwork and it just does, it has no soul. It doesn't have any... Yeah real feeling to it. So I, I, and, um, landing Butch was, was a, was a score. I mean, that guy is just, God, he is just a monster, monster artist, absolute beast. You know, he's inked all of the great people, all the great artists, Brian Hitch and all these guys. And so again, you know, that, that bleeds off in, into his own work, you know, which is, um, that's just how it works. That's how, that's how it goes. But um, yeah, between Mad Dogs and this children's book series, once once I start getting some finished artwork and whatnot, I'll I'll, I'll probably break loose some more details. But um, the idea that I had is so good, and it's so obvious that I don't want to talk about it until I'm kind of more in the position to say, <laughs> you know, we're we're close to you know, and I've already got some publishers interested, so it's not like it's not going to get published because it will. But um, it's such an obvious idea that I, I don't want to talk about the details too much but but i've got um it's uh written by uh written by my girlfriend lisa de pasquale edited by chuck edited by chuck dixon artwork by butch geist and obviously i'll be coloring it uh, but the overall kind of concept for the for the series it was mine and um, um it's going to be aimed at um, early readers six to nine cool yeah if i could if i could say this as a piece of advice for indie comics makers um if you're an artist or a colorist either pair up with a writer or spend time learning how to write well that's yeah even big name artists when they jump ship and found their own companies and stuff it turns out that they are really great at des designing characters and really great at making awesome art, but the stories they put together with it are very often not really compelling or interesting stories, and they don't really develop well. And, and I'm thinking of so many books that I love the art of and the ideas for were great concepts from the 90s um yeah and it may not necessarily be who you think i am but because i maybe probably didn't read those jack comics but mm -hmm. they probably fall into that too yeah i, I you know it, it, you know it's kind of, we're talking about tom cruise you know it's sort of like you know it, it's tom cruise is one of a kind um and uh these guys who can write 
really well, as well as they draw, you know, they're, they're rare, you know, they're just really rare. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not often that, that, that an artist can go and write as well as they draw if they were, you know, working with a Chuck Dixon or, a, you know, or a, a Mark Millar, you know, um, you know, it's, uh, again, you kind of got to know your limitations and, and I, and I've always known mine. Um, and I just, you know, and this is, um, this is my, this is got, this is my seventh or eighth project with Chuck. And, uh, we have such a shorthand together, uh, way of communicating. And, and, and on top of that, I just, uh, you know, he's one of the best. I mean, to me, he is the John Milius of comics. You know, he's got, he writes for men and, um, and he's got more public, you know, John's got more published scripts than anyone in Hollywood or more, or more, uh, scripts adapted to film than anyone in Hollywood. And Chuck has more scripts published than anyone in comics, even Stan Lee. I mean, these guys are just, they're just legends. And, um, uh, you know, Chuck and I see eye to eye on probably nearly everything anyway. And, and like, you know, we just have just a, a great communication and, uh, and just a great relationship. And, uh, it was, uh, it's been a blessing because I grew up reading that guy and just loving him on Punisher and, uh, Alien Legion and, 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 and Batman obviously, and, and so many others. And to, you know, be a 10 or 11 year old kid reading that stuff and then, later, you know, become an adult and get to hire him. Um, it's just a dream come true, even though it was, a, it was never a dream that I really ever had. It, it's beyond my wildest dreams. So, I mean, my, originally I just hoped to work in the comic book industry and, uh, be able to make a living at it and do, and, and do well. You know, I never figured that it would turn into producing my own books and going out and hiring creatives that uh, I grew up admiring and being inspired by and reading. And uh, that's sort of been uh, the, the biggest, one of the biggest blessings in my life and, and, a, and, a, and really a, an arc in my story that, that I, I never saw coming, you know, but um, you know, when you're on a roll, uh, you know, you know, you don't, you don't mess with, the, you know, don't mess with the streaks like uh, Crash Davis and Bull Durham. You never fuck with a winning streak. So Chuck and I are doing, you know, that, that's a streak. And I just can, I, I just hope that streak keeps going because we, we have continued to make really good books, whether it's Black Tide Rising, um, Blood, Blood Graphic Novel is one that we did together, which pretty much nobody saw because it was never, never promoted. It's on Amazon though. It's a 98 page graphic novel. It's a werewolf Western, werewolf uh, period piece, kind of like The Witch. Um, and um, Clinton Cash, I mean, God, we, we've done a bunch of stuff together, a lot, a lot of fun stuff. And uh, it's just, it's just been, it's just been an absolute pleasure and a blessing. So I'm really grateful. That's great. And uh, uh, for one, I'm grateful that you came on to share us with all that stuff because it's been absolutely uh, fascinating and, and, and frankly exciting to hear uh, your story and, and all that. And geeking out on movies was great too, but I, 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 I can, I can do, I can do that for another hour. That's for sure. You know, <laughs> geeking out on movies, man, you know, you know, right. You know, really any kind of pop culture. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things where it's just, it's, it's, it's my passion, you know, and I was lucky to kind of be able to, uh, you know, blur those lines between work and play. Cause that, that just doesn't happen all that often. You know, most people hate their job and, um, and that's, that's unfortunate, but, but that's why it's work. You know, and there's nothing wrong with that. Work is work, but um, I, I've been really, really blessed, you know, to uh, 
you know, to have had the, the career that I've had and to be able to work with people that I have. And it's, uh, I don't take it for granted. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that, uh, I, I thank God for, you know, every day, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's my pleasure. It's my honor. I was, I was, I was happy to be here. We, you know, we can do it again because, because um, there's, there's always more fun comics and movies and, uh, things to talk about. That's for sure. Well, that's great. Yeah. And, and we'll, uh, stay in touch, at least stay in touch with us and, you bet. and, uh, because we'd love to hear about what happens next. Yeah. Once I get a little bit closer on this children's book thing, um, I'll definitely come back and, and we'll, uh, we'll take a look at some artwork and, um, um, you know, and I'll, I'll keep you guys, uh, you know, posted on mad dogs. So, so you, you saw the, uh, the pages that I sent, what did you think? Um, what struck me the most, and this is what I, I like the most about it is, um, and now, honestly, I just went back and re-looked at them while you were describing uh, how your organic coloring was interacting with the um, with the art by Mr. Tappy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that was the vibe I was getting. Let me go look at that again and see how that worked. Good. Um, <laughs> I'm glad it works. <laughs> I came of an age where I was born in the 70s and, you know, uh, became a teenager in the eighties. And so I saw a lot of these movies when I was a kid, but they were like the death wish movies and all those other movies of that whole, uh, crime genre where mm -hmm. the city is going to pot. And because those, that's what was really happening yeah. in the, in the seventies and early eighties and yeah. stuff. And so, yeah, film film was a real reflection. You know, the Seven yeah. Ups, the French Connection, Death Wish, Dirty Harry. These, these were all reflections of society and what was going on at the time. Absolutely. And and I was reading when I was looking at the pages you sent. I was like, oh, this is. Uh, and part of it, it was like half subliminal until I got through like three or three or four of the pages, and I was like, this is exactly like you know, death, which is exactly like all of those um, urban dystopian mm. movies. And I was like, that's awesome because I love those movies. I loved, you know, the citizens were taking up arms to defend their, to defend their communities because the courts uh, and upper police stuff, they weren't doing it. And DAs, it was, yeah. just, it was so compelling. The, Chuck's writing was uh, stark. It grabbed you right from the beginning and the art was working right with it because mm -hmm. just the lines and the colors, it told you, right? When he's sitting there watching the TV or in the room with the TV, the way that the lines were like really jagged, right? Yeah. Uh, on his... Uh, on his the side of his uh, body, just told you that this was a dirty, grimy city. You didn't have to see like mounds of garbage in the street or, or people getting shot. Just that subtle stuff mm -hmm. told you this was a dark city. This was a city that was, you know, this is a milieu that was really dark. And I was just like, you know, it dragged you right in. Um, Good. It's, it's, I think it's immersive and I think it's, it's definitely hard boiled. Definitely. Um, but I think uh, I, I thought that, um, since we're kind of going through that again 
in these blue cities and blue states, I think yeah. that um, and these DAs seem to be more concerned with uh, the rights of the perps rather than the rights of the victims. I think that from a standpoint of a genre and messaging and just overall kind of scope, I think that um, I think it rings true today. I, I think that there's a connection there again. And that's another reason why I approached Chuck to, to uh, kind of revive this old series and give it a, a fresh new look with some color and, um, and, and tell this story. Who doesn't love a period piece, for one? Um, and also, you know, those buddy action genre, those, those buddy cop genre, they're Westerns in disguise. You know, I mean, basically, you've got a town that is falling apart at the seams because of crime. And so the, the lone hero has to come in and, and save the town. And then once the, once the town is saved, and fixed, they no longer need him. So he leaves. It's kind of like Shane, you know, I mean, you know, off yeah. of the sunset he goes, you know, and, 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 and that's basically what Dirty Harry, I think in Death Wish, the, the, those movies are very much Westerns, uh, but, but also they are social commentary in, in a lot of ways on, um, you know, and that Dirty Harry has got that great, that great scene with the DA where he's all talking about the rights of Scorpio, you know, that man has rights, you know, and Clint's like, you know, well, what about what about that girl that he murdered and dropped down into the storm drain? What about her rights? You know, and, and that and that's and that that's the same kind. That that's the thing that grinds me today, is that there's all this. Uh, no, you know, the 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 perp is the victim, and the cop is 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 the perp. I mean, that that that's that's how it's kind of treated. So I just kind of figured um, this will play. The storyline and this theme will play again today be, because. It's we're right in the middle of it again. It's timely all over again. Uh, that's kind of why I figured it would work. You know, I, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be spending my time on this book. You know, there's, 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 there's a lot of other things to do, obviously, but I wouldn't be spending my time on it if I didn't think that it was a story worth telling. Obviously it's beautiful artwork. Obviously it's Chuck Dixon, you know, um, but I think that there's something, like you said, there's, it's timely. And I think that um, from that standpoint, it will connect with uh, with with readers, you know. And like I said, most people never saw the book, you know. Sadly, um, like you know, and you can buy it on eBay. But you know, I'm going to give everyone extra incentive to check it out, you know, or the new version because I think the colors, I think, really bring it to life. And and I think Victor, you know, would um, who who tragically died, I think, of cancer in the early 2000s. Um, um, I, I think he'd love what, what I'm doing with his artwork because I'm, I'm not I'm trying not to step on it. You know, a lot of colorists these days really over render things and they just step all over the art. You, you know, um, one of the things I learned uh, when working with uh, Walt Simonson on Avengers was to um, first I looked at what Laura Martin had done with them and some other past digital colorists. But a lot of the times less is more, you know, you know, you know, let the artwork breathe. You know, don't don't stifle it, you know, go in and just complement it, you know, with warms and cools and textures. And and and, and if you'll notice in some of those pages, you know, um, uh, a lot of the times I add smoke and atmospherics and stuff like that. And again, that's kind of to give it sort of a 80s kind of cinematography sort of look. But at the same time, you're also building depth and, and giving it, uh, you know, you know, giving it um, more of a of a cinematic look and sort of feel. So it, it's it's fun stuff to work on too. I mean that stuff is sort of labor of love, you know. But uh, but yeah, I, I 
I'm glad that you had a, a positive reaction to it because, um, you know, you, you know, you start on these things sometimes and you love it so much. You think that everybody's going to love it. And um, that's that's not always the case. You know, it doesn't always work out that way. So. Outstanding. It's true. If you want to share um, that with um, uh, you, you, if you want to share that with them, go ahead. You know, I, you know, if you want to take a look at it as well, you know, so both, you know, I'd love to get both you guys uh, response to it. So, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll that along. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, uh, let's, let's wrap up for now. It's been totally great. Um, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Appreciate it. Um, I hope, uh, I hope everybody, we had a few people hanging out live. We didn't, you didn't get any questions from the chat, but, uh, I hope they enjoyed the talk today and I hope everybody listening later, uh, really appreciate it. And goes and checks out some of your stuff. Um, I, I just, and I didn't say this up front, like I'm not a comics guy, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I mentioned Watchmen. I, I haven't read much more than that, but, uh, uh, so it's, it's been, from my perspective, it's been really interesting and fascinating to talk cool. about all of this stuff. So I, I, lo I love talking to people who aren't comics people, you know, uh, you know, movie people are easy to convert to comics that, that, that is, that is definitely been <laughs> my experience, you know, I mean, visual storytelling is visual storytelling, whether it's 24 frames per second or you know, one frame, you know, eight, six, six frames, six to eight frames per page. You know, it's, it's the same kind of thing. I, although I, I will say, I started to take up more time, but I did get as a gift a few years ago, the, uh, a copy of my hero Magademia Walmite. That was funny. Yeah. <laughs> you've got, you got a credit on some of that. So that's, yeah, cool. I, I think I colored, I, I think like I think, uh, maybe half the book or something like that, but yeah, but, you know, I, the political satire is always fun. Um, and I, and I think that's the only way that you can really do politics and comics is if it's satirical and it's, yeah. and it's, it's, it's got an element of, uh, of fun and kind of silliness. Um, otherwise I, I don't like politics and comics, you know, it's, you know, the, the message, is, as my buddy Robert Davi, uh, who I've interviewed on Political Punks, um, uh, who's probably one of the greatest Bond villains of all time, is Fran Sanchez. He, he says that um, the, the, the message has to be in the ravioli. You know, you know, you can't shoehorn this stuff in, you know, and just lecture people. You know, the, it's got to be baked into the story or baked into mm. the ravioli. And, and I believe that, especially when it comes to politics and comics. Well said. Well said. Uh, Daddy Werpig, we're going to give you the last words. Can you send us off? Absolutely. Uh, we want to thank everyone who came to the show and listened live. And uh, we also want to thank everybody who will listen later. This has been Geek Gab for Saturday, April 1st, 2023. You can get us here just about every week on YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. That is YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. Don't forget to subscribe and uh, click the little bell icon to be notified when we go live. So you can come and uh, listen to us interview great guests like this or just do reviews and general kibitzing. How do you like that, John? Kibitzing. I love, I I love the word kibitzing. <laughs> we are signing out for today, folks. Oh, yeah, we're available on the Google Play Store, the Apple iTunes Store, and on SoundCloud.com. You can download us on the device of your choice or just listen to us on the web because that's the kind of cool laid-back guys we are. We are signing up for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will.
Be back.